Treat every customer like they're your mother or your sister or your brother. Treat them with respect. We want them to come back. We want them to feel loved here and to have a really, really beautiful experience. Um, but it makes our day better as well. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There have been many people in the hospitality industry that have poured all their energy into careers in the big cities, lured by the energy, fast pace and experience. But often that lifestyle can take its toll on many. Some realise a need for a tree change and apply their craft to smaller communities in much calmer surrounds. What's that transition like and when do you know the time is right for change? Sarah Swan is the co-owner of 100 Mile Table and Bay Grocer. Sarah, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Huck, yourself? I'm good. It's good to hear your voice. It's been a little while. Yeah, you too. <laughs> it has been a while. Well, you've made a tree change quite a while ago and a real impact on um, sort of northern New South Wales with the businesses that you have. Well, what triggered that change for you? You know, Byron Bay was um, always a place that my husband Dan and I used to come on holidays and and like many, I'm sure we would think about how we could make it a permanent shift one day without really thinking it was a possibility. But I was lucky enough to land, you know, in my dream job um, as Neil Perry's PA and with Rockpool back in the day where, you know, I was with those guys for 15 years and just got to that point where I felt the need to move away from a big city. Dan was finishing a PhD with Queensland University, which he could do remotely, but it was always, you know, better for him to be that step closer physically. So we decided to jump off that waterfall around the year the global financial crisis happened. And I just managed to secure this cosy little deal with Neil and Trish, which would see me bring a little bit of my job north with me three days a week. I could work from the home office and do some media stuff for them. And then that hit and we're like, oh, that's a bad time to do things. So we got all scaredy pants and dropped back and I dropped back into life in the office at Rockpool and Dan kept doing his PhD from afar. Um, but then, you know, we just all, if, if you don't do it now, you'll, you'll never do it. I think we gave it another year. And then we left. And, yeah, for me it was just I'd had decades in the kitchen. I'd sort of worn myself out of that a long time previously. And when I started with the Rockpool Group in 1998, I had a time in the kitchens at Rockpool and EXO mostly. Um, and then even then that, that burnout eventually happened. I just got I just got so tired of, of the weekends, the nights, the partying after work, the drinking too much, the whole the whole thing. Um, and I slipped into, I guess, an office role essentially with those guys. They're very accommodating and, and that is very much a Neil Perry Trish Riches and a Rockpool thing is when you have the staff that you want and that are loyal to you, they've always been extraordinary at giving that loyalty back triplefold. Um, so they really looked after me and they understood my need to find a new life and a little bit of a quieter space and a bit more breathing room. And they really, really helped me get up here. Um, and, you know, those those relationships are, are really, really strong still. 
I want to dig deeper into that role that you had at Rockpool a bit later on. But what was that transition like of actually moving to the country? Was it was it challenging at first? I thought it was going to be more challenging than it was. Um, Dan grew up in a small country town in England, and he warned me. He said, "You're going to find that people know your business; that it's too small for you." Because I'm the city girl, born in Auckland moved to Australia when I was 16 or 17, did Melbourne, did Sydney, did London, went back to Sydney. I'd never, ever lived in a smaller place than a big city. Um, So he really warned me about it. But I just found it to be the right size. It's It's not a really tiny, pokey little spot out in the bush. It's It's actually a vibrant place, and for me it was absolutely the right size. And people did know your business, but they weren't nosy and they weren't prying. It really, for me, was the right-sized community where you. I found that we made uh, friendships really quickly. Um, People, you became more of a big fish in a little pond, you know. Um, It was quite comforting and people were really supportive of the new business that I was creating, even my direct competitors, I guess. So I didn't find it hard. What I did really miss was my friends and Chinatown. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. And still do. Tell us about the early days uh, with 100 Mile Table um, and the connections that you were fostering with local producers and the community. Well, that was really beautiful before we actually moved up We'd still come up on holidays and even then I would do a little pop-up lunch at um, a place called the Bangalore Guest House um, and we would just set a table on the balcony there for 20 people and we had a few good friends that we'd made on our trips up here. Um, the Cromwell family, Greg and Alison and their three daughters were always incredibly good to us and they'd put us in touch with a few of the local farmers, producers, um, even the guys from Stone and Wood who were fresh into business, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and we'd just create these lovely lunches and started to make all these connections. And then you'd visit the farmers markets, which are just awesome up here, everywhere from Mullumbimby to Byron to New Brighton and Bangalore. And it's just very, very easy. Like it, it, like I said, it is that nice-sized community where – you know, back in Sydney, Neil was always a wonderful, and it is still is, a wonderful champion of getting to know your producers and your growers. Um, but the reality of actually meeting them, going to their farms, getting to see what they do firsthand was, was not that real. Up here, you can do that on a, on a weekly basis. You see them all at the farmer's market every week. Those that aren't at the farmer's market are all within, you know, an hour's drive of here. So when I started doing those little pop-ups before we moved up, we called it 100-mile table. And the reality of using product from within 100 miles was just so true, uh, so very real and um, an actual thing. So um, it was a great start. And then by the time we made the transition, which is – 10 years ago next month, um, I had a lot of those relationships already established. And like I said, people were supportive. And I was doing a little bit of um, 
just home-based catering. When I moved up, I was doing three days a week of rock pool work from the home office, and then I started doing some private catering. And the other caterers around at that time were so incredibly supportive. And, and I'll sort of name one woman in particular was Monique from Seaweed Cuisine. And she approached me at an event and introduced herself and said, if you ever need extra staff, if you ever need a hand meeting growers and suppliers, please let me know and I'd love to help out. Um, and it was just beautiful. Tell us about 100 Mile Table. It's been a few years now that you've had 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 it. What, what sort of, how did your cooking change and the offering that you do compared to what you'd been used to in the cities? It just sort of, we just dialed everything back a whole bunch. Um, I was catering from home, as I mentioned, and the business started to grow a little bit quickly and I suddenly felt the need to be in a proper kitchen and I felt the need to have a business partner that would support me and bring different skills to the business as well. Dan was helping me out, but he really, really didn't want to. He's a media tech guy and he does startups and I was forcing him to carry plates at a lunch and it wasn't good. Um, and interestingly, I travelled to New Zealand with uh, Neil uh, some years previous to do um, shoot a television show called Food Source New Zealand. While we were there, we did some shooting at Stony Ridge Vineyard on Waiheke Island and the operations manager there was a guy called uh, Jeremy Byrne and we became friends. Um, and over the years, just stayed really friendly he was living in Auckland. I was in Sydney. I became great mates with his uh, sister who was living in Sydney. And we just realised through constant emailing that we had a really similar view and outlook and dreams of what we wanted to do with our lives and hospitality. Um, and I was driving along the road with Dan one day, uh, my Oakham Road and out in the sticks here, and I said, I just don't feel like I want to do this by myself anymore. I think Jeremy needs to move over and come into this business. And I sent him a text and I said, it's time to move over. And he had a wife and a new little baby boy. No, baby boy, a little boy and a new little baby girl. And um, he said, I was just saying to Emily, I think it's time we moved over. And he flew over, had a look around Bangalore, found a place to live. And six months later, they were here and... They've now been here for, it's got to be eight years. We started a 100-mile table. We took the lease on a um, an old mechanic site down the end of a driveway, down the end of a road in the industrial estate in Byron, which at the time was really just an industrial estate and not a whole lot of, not a whole lot of fancy going on. And we just created very simple, authentic, delicious cafe food compared to what was happening, you know, at Rockpool, at Exo, at Rockpool, all those places I'd been. This was just bring it right back, feed the people, but I didn't want to lose touch with the skills or the flavour profiles or the, or the balance or the anything. Um, so we were doing chicken and ginger congee. We were doing fish curry. We were doing beautiful bacon butties and and making beautiful homemade cakes and all the things. And it was a long table 
through a roller door with big concrete walls and uh, it just took off. It was, it was really beautiful and it was great to watch our business grow as the, you know, the arts and industry estate grew around us. Eight years later, that place is just, it's heaving. It's heaving. When we opened, I think there were two places you could get a decent coffee, one of which was us, and to and, and similarly something nice to eat. So now there'd be, you know, there's got to be 30, 40 different options in there um, and all, you know, many, many good ones. Lots happened since we started. You mentioned that you grew up in Auckland. Take, take us back there. What sort of role did food play in your family when you were young? It played a big role in the family. Um, I, like most people, I think, had two grandmothers that were sublime cooks. Um, one was the queen of pikelets and bakeless cake and the other was the queen of bacon and scrambled eggs, which I will call it out, were better than Bill Granger's. Um, mum, was, mum was a wonderful cook. Um, I think... She didn't ever really want to. She was probably not really interested, and I, I guess it was more um, – I'd probably call her a survival cook with great flair. Um, so – and Dad, he, you know, he could burn a sausage on the barbecue as good as the next guy, but he did a mean pot of mussels. So it wasn't a big food culture in my house, but lots of great natural cooks. Um, Christmas times were pretty idyllic. We used to – my parents divorced when I was very young, but I, but two very, very split families. So Christmases with mum and my stepdad and my brother were away on a boat for about six weeks and we would always fish off the boat for snapper and kingfish and that would be, you know, breakfast would be a piece of pan-fried snapper we'd caught an hour earlier in a little bit of flour with a wedge of lemon Dinner, we would take the rowboat ashore. We'd sail sort of up around the Bay of Islands, Waiheke, Great Barrier. And, you know, going back all those those decades, you were allowed to just take your boat ashore, build a fire, smack some oysters off the rocks, which was diabolical, but we could do that. We'd take the little... We'd take a little axe and get oysters and mussels off the rocks and dinner was always over an open fire on a beautiful remote beach. Um, really beautiful. So... My food memories really are more just those beautiful family holidays and things like that. I I used to bake myself at home from the Edmunds cookbook and, you know, you'll probably find page 38 chocolate fudge glued shut with bits of old butter and cocoa. But I wasn't a, wasn't a big cook. I just used to bake a lot and then mum will tell you that at the age of 14, I came from home from high school one day and I said, I'm going to be a chef. And she said, okay, where did that come from? And I went, I don't really know, but I'm going to be a chef. I like cooking and I like the looks on people's faces when they're pleased and happy and that's probably what's going to happen. And it did. What was it like when you first started working in a commercial kitchen? Do you remember those, those early sort of years? I do remember quite vividly. I I started out in some very odd places. We moved to Australia when I was 16 or 17 and when we had a quick year in Melbourne and then up in Sydney, my stepfather, Trevor, um, uh, don't know what his connections were, can't remember, but he got me some work experience um, 
and this will show my age back at the Siebel Townhouse. And also at a little place in Rose Bay, which went on to become Pia, but I think at the time was called Dory's, Dory's Seafood Restaurant. And that I remember being misogynistic, um, just quite awful. Not the Siebel, but Dory's was a, an odd little place where I just felt like women were not treated terribly well in a kitchen. But that was a little bit of weekend work while I was doing a pre-apprenticeship course. And then I did my full apprenticeship at the Sheraton Wentworth Hotel, which... Wow. Yeah, well, and it was it was that hotel back in the day. I think back then, I wouldn't necessarily ever choose to work in a place like that. But you did learn all the skills because you were put. They had a, a true apprenticeship program there from first through to fourth years, and you started off doing breakfast buffet and Banks Coffee Shop and cutting the fruit plates and then they sent you out into the big wide world to cook omelettes in front of the tourists for breakfast at the buffet and then you'd progress to functions. But you did learn baking and you did learn butchery and you did learn to, you know, kill a lobster for the grill where the businessmen were coming in to have lobster sashimi for lunch and then you would progress up to the Garden Court restaurant if you were good enough. Um, and I did that and I, I enjoyed it, but I don't feel like there was a, it was a great learning experience. My apprenticeship, I probably partied a bit too much and I, I enjoyed it, but I, it wasn't my place. One of my best mates at the time, one of my best mates now, Linda, she was, she was an apprenticeship, apprentice at the same time. And we were going through TAFE together at Pulini's in Neutral Bay, which was Greg Doyle's place. And she would sometimes, even as a you know third or fourth year apprentice, I think, be sent in early and she would be the only one in the kitchen doing basic larder prep. And I would go and stand there and just watch her after I'd finished my shift at the hotel. And she'd be peeling asparagus and peeling prawns. And I'm like, oh, I kind of want to do this food. Um, but I didn't, I stuck out my apprenticeship and then the day after I qualified, I jumped on a plane and I went off to the other side of the world. <laughs> well, take us over there. What, what sort of experience do you have, uh, overseas before returning and, and what impact did it have on you and, and food? It had a big impact. I, I spent the first three months, I traveled overland through Southeast Asia. So I tasted all that Asian food from the bottom of Indonesia. We travelled up overland, my, my friend and I, through um, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand. Then I, she went off to China. This is in 1989. She went off to China and I went the other way across to Sri Lanka um, where the place was in lockdown because the civil war was on. Um, so we were under strict curfew. I was with a Kiwi friend, Max, um, but, God, we just travelled around and ate some great food through, you know, three months in Asia. I think I left with $3,000 in, in my hand. And that lasted me till I landed in London three months later. And I had um, really no idea what I was doing. I only know that I was there on a – I had a work visa. I had a couple of years up my sleeve and – 
I jumped onto the underground and uh, the tube and I jumped off at the Monopoly stops, which was all I really knew. And, um, oh, you'll love this one. I, I was just walking around with my little CV in my hand. There I was, fresh out of my apprenticeship. And I saw a lovely... I saw a lovely restaurant on a corner and it was just pre-lunch, probably 11 a.m. And I went up and knocked on the big front door, which was locked. And a lady came out and she said, can I help you? I said, oh, hello, my name's Sarah. Um, I was just wondering if there were any jobs going. Well, what are you looking for? Um, I'm a chef. Oh, Okay, well, people don't normally just walk up and ask for a job, but if you just go out, turn right, turn right again, and then go down the stairs and ask for chef. And that was Michelle Rue Jr., and I just knocked on the door of Le Gavroche. And I think I went down and I found him down in the boondocks of this basement kitchen. And I think he just looked at me so incredulously, and he smiled and he said, well, you're quite brave. Do you really think you want to work here? And I said, I'm not sure. I think so. He said, well, come down and see the kitchen. And we went down into the kitchen and it was, there was not a woman inside. It was all guys. It was dark. And he said, these guys work up to 16 hours a day, six days a week. And this is what they do and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, whoa. And then he took me back to the office and sat me down and we had a chat. And he said, i like the way you do things, um, you're very welcome to come and do some work experience here and see if you like it. And I was by that stage going, oh, I don't know if that's what I want to do actually. Um, but he did send me off to some of their other places, some of their catering companies on the Thames and so forth. And they did end up offering me a job in one of those places. But by then I'd hunted down a New Zealand chef who I knew of called Peter Thornley. And he was working at... Um, the Washington Square Hotel in Mayfair and I did the same thing and I kind of walked up and knocked on the door and and he was a bit more loose and carefree and I ended up working there and I had I had a great time I worked 90 hours a week for 135 pounds in the hand and it absolutely took me down and I was I think I was the only girl in the kitchen of a about 17, but the boys all really looked after me. They were very supportive and I learned a lot there and I really enjoyed it. But I was young and I was in London and all my friends were working as bartenders and having such a good time and earning so much money that I went into that too. And I spent the next couple of years as a bar manager in, in an American-themed bar in Fulham which was just an enormously fun time, but doing nothing for my career in food. But I really enjoyed it, and I stuck with that for the rest of my time over there. Um, eventually, I ended up marrying, um, marrying an Englishman um, in the Chelsea Registry Office. We flew home via Mexico. He came to Australia, and... I landed back here and got a job, or back in Sydney, and I got a job at um, the Bayswater Brasserie, working with Tony Pappas and the crew there. And from there, it was Bayswater Brasserie, Bathers Pavilion, and on to um, you know Bathers with Genevieve Harris, and then on to um, uh, Wokpool with Kylie. And those last two kitchens, just great nurturing kitchens, full of. Um, strong independent women which taught me a whole bunch of different things lots of lots of nurturing lots of 
a, a different different situation in in all those kitchens, but great humour, great caring. Um, I never had the displeasure of working in any of those um, really pan-throwing old European kitchens. I seemed to have chosen quite well through the years, but they all taught me different things and and I gained a great mentor at each place that I worked. You spent over a decade with the Rockpool Group. Tell us about your time there. I know there was a big transition out of the kitchen and into the office, but in the early days, what, what was that kitchen like uh, for you? Well, when I first... When I first started with the Rockpool Group, it was as sous chef at Rockpool in Darling Harbour. So Kylie Kwong was Grand Poobar and she was just extraordinary. And then um, this was one of the all-female kitchens, well, certainly the, you know, certainly the executive corner that I worked in. So Kylie was the head chef and then there were three, myself, Claudia, uh, Danielle, and then two junior sous chefs um, who were also women. So, again, there was this really great culture of work hard, learn, teach, but also nurture, um, and a really big focus on look after your workmates, look after yourselves, but, you know, we're here, we're professionals, and we've got to do some, we've got to do some big covers. So... Um, I spent a couple of years there at Wokpool, um with Kylie and then Claudia took over from her as the head chef and an absolutely brilliant um, launch into true Asian food for me. We'd touched on it at the Bathers Pavilion with Genevieve Harris, but this was this was eye-opening for me and this was really the flavours that I remember from travelling through Asia. And Kylie would spend so much one-on-one time with all her staff and she taught me how to make curry pastes but how to cook those curry pastes out properly by really toasting the split coconut cream and and huge skills and to this day, you know, the food that I truly, truly do love to eat. Um, she was just incredible. Um, so that was that was good. I we did a couple of years at Wokpool and then got through the Sydney two thousand Olympics, which were hectic in restaurants, just absolutely hectic in Sydney restaurants. And we had teams cooking twenty four hours. The graveyard shift would come in at night and just steamed ducks, roast pork, par-cooked noodles, make curry pastes, just so that the morning team could come in and just start cooking and serving immediately. So just full teams on 24 hours. And absolutely, you know, we were all buggered by the time we came out of that, but it was such a buzz and and such a great time in Sydney, you know, I'm sure you'd remember. Um, I took a little bit of time out after that. I actually resigned from Rockpool and I ran away to India for about six months um, just to somewhere I'd always wanted to go. And I just went off by myself and met a couple of mates there for a little while. Um, and then I got a message from Neil somewhere around the five-month mark, which was typical Neil. You must be finished chanting now. Time to come home. And I said, I don't think I'm, don't think I'm ready to jump back in the kitchen he said, well, that's okay. We'll find something else for you. Again, typical Neil, typical Trish. They 
they really they looked after their people. Um, so I ended up going back and I jumped into the office at a time when um, they were starting to set up websites and they needed a hand getting all those old recipes that Neil had written and gathered over the years, which were on bits of paper in files out the back of filing cabinets and start to really, you know, bring the Rockpool recipe legacy together. So I did that and loved it and then um, Neil's PA Louise resigned and he said, well, it looks like you're my PA now. And I went, I don't know how to do that. I I can't do that. That's that's not me. Well, no, it is. Okay. All right then. Guess it is. Um, so apart from the sort of more mundane, mundane things, which I was absolutely terrible at, I think, um, I came became more of a um, a bit of a partner in crime with him and that then became some of the best working years of my life. Um, we travelled, we did, you know, Los Angeles and New York every January for G'day USA where we would cook banquets for 2,000 people in Los Angeles for the likes of, you know, David Thompson was there one year, Shannon Bennett, Guillaume, all of those guys. We'd do these incredible big banquets in these crazy big hotel kitchens where nobody really wanted to help us. So there'd be three of us from Rockpool and a few others and we'd be in working day and night for three days to get food ready for these huge banquets. Always, always great. And then we'd jump on a plane and fly to New York and we'd do you know, a cocktail party for 20 at the Consul General's residence. I was like, oh, that's better. Um, so travel and apart from being in the kitchen and cooking and being in those wonderful cities with, with Neil and other Rockpool chefs, um, I got to organise those trips and do all the planning, which I found out I really loved. Um, he would send me with another chef off to, say, the Four Seasons in Singapore and say, we've got to do this gala dinner at, this, at uh, the Four Seasons for 400 people. So you and Ben, Ben Pollard, you you guys go ahead and, and I'll come along in three or four days' time and we jump into the kitchen and try and get all this food ready and he'd have um, put me in the horrible situation of having to recreate some Catherine Adams dessert for 400 people when I'm just not a pastry chef and he'd say, Catherine's made this great jelly and this really beautiful custard and you just need to go to Singapore and do it in this foreign kitchen for 400. I'm like, oh, that's, that's going to – that's I can't wait. Can't wait. Um, but we did lots of great travel and then we'd travel for um, television shows as well. So I worked very closely with his um, team at the Lifestyle Channel to do um, Food Source New Zealand and Far North Queensland and Kangaroo Island and various places. Um, so just a great job for a chef that was feeling a little bit done in by the kitchen after a couple of decades in there, wanting to stay in the industry, wanting to stay really connected, wanting to stay with the company, what do I do? Um, so I landed my dream job. Um, and then there, then there came all the, all the books as well. So I worked really closely with Neil on um, his books, um, 
the food I love, good food, balance and harmony, all of those. Um, he obviously has recipes, which I would then sort of bring into a format that made sense. And then I'd work with the publishers when it came round to the photo shoot. I would then be in a studio with sometimes Neil, but always Sue Feli Cunningham and Earl Carter. And we would always create these wonderful images for these books time and time again. And we had a really nice team. We knew how everybody worked together. And they're just some of the most precious memories I have of um, working with Neil and, and the Rockpool group is, is bringing all those books together. I loved it. I loved it so much. Um, and then also, of course, I sort of would – I did a lot of the media stuff for them. So if Neil was just sending out recipes to newspapers or magazines or whatever, like that was my – those were my projects. So, yes, I was his PA, but I was more his cooking sidekick and and uh, just I think another part of his brain in a way. And, um, you know, what I will say about Neil is that he's – He's a generous human being. He shares all the information. He's always been a great teacher. He's probably my greatest mentor. Well, he is definitely the greatest mentor in my life in terms of food. He's such a believer and he will always be horribly loyal and I think any of his long-term staff will tell you that. Um, and, he, and, you know, always becomes a great friend. But equally, Trish, you know, she was just such a wonderful boss and, you know, I genuinely believe that those two should have some sort of marble statue stuck up in Martin Place or something. Incredible people. Hundred Mile Table um, became so successful; it gave you the space to open Bay Grocer as well. Tell, tell us a bit about that and and um, what you created there. Uh, Bay Grocer is just something—a store that I'm incredibly proud of. We've been open two and a half years now in Byron Bay. Um, Jeremy and I were uh, going well at a 100-mile table, still loving it, um, but essentially it's a small cafe um, and there was never much further we could go with it. The catering side of it was strong and we were enjoying it, but we had our eye on this particular site in Byron for years and I said, God, I'd love to get my hands on that. I'd just love to do a food store. And then, lo and behold, it became available and we jumped in there and we opened on Australia Day long weekend, what are we in now, 2019. So two and a half years we've been going and yeah, we really, really love it. We started out a little bit small. We stocked our shelves really stingily thinking we just want to be smart and sleek and not be everything to everyone, but then we realise that, you know, those stores just need to be abundant and full and giving and and then people just loved it more and more and we sort of got to a point at um, early 2020, actually just at the beginning of the pandemic, where we put in a new kitchen and we built a deli. So we've managed, we've been lucky enough, one of the lucky businesses, to be honest, through COVID being an essential service, we've been able to um, not just stay alive but grow a little bit. 100-mile table, not so not so great. But Bay Grocer, we've been able to just keep pushing and keep moving and keep changing. And we have a really beautiful mix of local customers as well as, 
you know, the tourist groups coming through, not so much right now. Um, and it's, it's a real joy to both Jeremy and myself. We enjoyed being in there every day. We have really beautiful staff that have been with us from the beginning. Uh, so we feel very grateful to have made that transition at a quite good time and just something that we hope to just keep on loving for a bunch of years to come. There's all sorts of various uh, iterations of lockdowns going on in Australia still, but in between those lockdowns, there's been lots of uh, domestic travel and Byron definitely received a lot of uh, tourists in sporadic moments. What sort of impact has it had on you guys? Do you expect a sort of boom beyond sort of COVID? Yeah, I think we, yeah, we do. Um, we we can see real transitions in the highs and lows of lockdowns and Sydney lockdown, regional lockdowns. Big one for us is the Queensland border. A huge amount of our weekend trade and Byron's weekend trade is Gold Coast and Brisbane. So that really has an effect. But we are also quite locally driven. We do still fly that local flag quite strongly. So locals will shop with us as well because of that. So we never lose that trade. Um, I think if Sydney is released from lockdown pre-Christmas, I imagine we will get absolutely violated up here. Um, <laughs> certainly, certainly late last year after the first lockdown, Byron and the Gold Coast, I think, became real hot spots of a beautiful place to be, you know, big wide open spaces and beautiful beaches and and a thriving restaurant scene, um, you know, that's been getting better and better every year. Um, so, yes, I guess the crowds will come. Um, you know, how long it stays and whether they find – somewhere else to go that they haven't been before. I think Queensland's going to boom as well. But, yeah, I think I think Byron's on the map for a very good reason. Um, a lot of people seem to think that it's past its day and has become too infested with tourists. But quite honestly, the charm is still here. It is still Byron and its natural beauty – and its progressive nature and the people that choose to come and live here but also come and visit here, you know, they're all good. They're all here for the right reasons for the most part and and the vibe remains quite quite authentic and, and quite good. So I think Byron will boom. I think um yeah, we'll hit we'll hit a level at some point, but I don't see it going backwards any time in the near future. Um, and I think Bay Grocer will, will go along with that. We don't have any plans to stop progressing or stop changing. Um, you know, we just we just walk up and down the aisles of that shop and change things every single day. I mean, I can walk in tomorrow and not remember where we put the pasta yesterday. We just change things all the time. And I have to keep saying to our regular customers, just keeping you on your toes, guys, don't want you getting bored. <laughs> You've, you've made an incredible success of this uh, tree change and, and created establishments that are real hubs of the community but also attractions for tourists as well. W what is it that you love about what you do? 
I love the hospitality industry at its core. I love the people that are involved in it. And, and Jeremy and I actually often talk about this and we say, well, there's retail hospitality, but that's how we train our staff. You know, we have a cafe at the front as well, of course, but whenever we hold staff meetings and have a little staff gathering, the 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 talk is always about treat every customer like they're your mother or your sister or your brother. Treat them with respect. We want them to come back. We want them to feel loved here and to have a really, really beautiful experience. Um, but it makes our day better as well. Um, I love that my staff, our staff, love our place like it's their own and that intrinsically is the hospitality industry. We're all in it for the right reason. And uh, if we're not, hopefully we figured it out a long time ago and got out because we're there to look after people, to make our lives better, to make their lives better. And really that's all there is to it. Well, Sarah, it's amazing to catch up with you again. And we loved hearing your story on Deep in the Weeds today. Um, Please keep in touch. I will indeed. You too. And um, would love to catch up again soon. Thanks, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.